vinyl and mixtape world. That night in New York, Eminem played an all-ages show on Staten Island, went over a black hip-hop crowd in Manhattan, and at four in the morning entertained a club of models, wannabe models, and all those they attract. Eminem was as fucked up as anyone I've seen with a microphone outside of a wedding, and he killed them across the board. After the night of shows, and after we'd missed a few planes, I spent the flight talking to Eminem while everyone around us slept. We broke down his broken home, his mother, his grandmother, and the family history that is now the stuff of lyrics. He was very different during that quiet time, as he was on the driving tour of his hometown, and as he always is one-on-one. He expressed himself thoughtfully, without boasts or poses. He's nothing if not kinetic, but it's a quick, often subtle switch from Shady to Eminem, from Eminem to Marshall, and back again. It seems to happen as soon as you, or he maybe, think he's settled into one of them too long. The real Marshall Mathers, the one I met before the fame, and have seen less of since, is the most interesting side of him. He's angry and sensitive, shy and curious. The real Marshall is who America is really consumed with. He's a whole new paradigm of the white male. Talented, humble, proud, mad, frustrated, hateful, and capable of compassion. At his best and worst, Eminem embraces the contradictions at the heart of our society. I think it was somewhere in the air, between New York and Detroit, that Eminem decided to let me be the one journalist he'd arranged to have interview his mother. It was a coup, the Holy Grail, found before the search began. For several months after the story was published, Eminem's mom, then called Debbie Mathers Briggs, would phone me. We'd chat about Marshall as a child, and from my vantage point on the outside, her recollections sounded like tales of a family making do with what they had, and finding happiness in their shared struggle. She would ask me why Marshall hated her now, and why he was doing what he was doing to her. She stopped calling after she filed her legendary lawsuit against her son, and, I assume, heard that the tape of my initial interview with her would be filed by the defense as evidence, should the case come to trial. This audiobook is not so much a biography as it is snapshots and billboards. Captured moments I've experienced amidst the changing backdrop of Eminem's life and career. Eminem's life is forked since I first met him. Much of it is no longer his, as he is no longer a person but a symbol to so many. Expectations, responsibilities, and the tumult of his life's last four years have made being Eminem more complex. But underneath it all, at his core, he is the same, in my opinion, and his desires are simple. He lives for hip-hop and his daughter, nothing more. For Eminem, the superstar rapper, the toast of Hollywood circa 2003, his preferred turf is still as humble as the white t-shirts he wears. He relies on what works for him, bending words to his will, honing double rhyme structures to convey what life has dealt him, ultimately to undo it, at least for the length of a song. His lyrics bite, cut, jab, and burn with an urgency that few artists harness. He uses rap music, but he speaks a universal language, the same language of experience, hardship, and humor, heard in the blues, jazz, country, and folk, in literature and in stand-up comedy, anywhere a story, through passion, becomes real in the retelling. Marshall Bruce Mathers III, born in Kansas City, raised in Detroit, elevates his life to art. Art is many things, but when it is true, 
Anyone, from anywhere, at any time, can see it and feel it and understand the emotion beneath it, even if they don't speak the language. If the feeling is pure, art can lead the whole world down the artist's rabbit hole, at least for a minute. If that art is a song, everyone hears the message, even if they don't like the words. It is March 1999 and cold in Detroit. Snow piled in banks frames the sides of the road and grows higher the farther the avenues ripple out from the center of the city. Far from downtown, off the interstate, the roads narrow, the lights are fewer, and the trees are taller. The trailer park is silent and still as a morgue. It is two in the morning. In front of me, a blond guy in baggy clothes trudges up the stairs of a trailer and reads the eviction notice on his front door. We took care of that one. Paul Rosenberg says, don't worry about it. The blonde guy doesn't answer. He just rips it down and opens the unlocked door. He doesn't lock it? I ask. No, Paul says. They've had so much shit stolen over the years, he doesn't give a fuck anymore. The double-wide trailer is warm, and I sit on the couch. Before me, on the floor in front of the TV, is a much smaller couch. A groggy, swirly-haired little girl curls up on it while her mother readies her bed. Above her on the wall are glossy photos in black frames. Two of Eminem and Dr. Dre dressed as patient and analyst for the My Name Is video shoot. The other, a solo shot of Dr. Dre, with a scrawled note that reads, Dear Marshall, thanks for the support, asshole. Mimicking Slim Shady's autograph to a fan working at White Castle in My Name Is. The CD rack holds Tupac, Snoop Dogg, Mace, Babyface, Luther Vandross, and Astero. On a wall by the kitchen hangs a photocopied list titled Commitments for Parents. The first line reads, I will give my child space to grow, dream, succeed, and sometimes fail. My mother moved back to Kansas City, so I bought this trailer from her, Eminem says, sitting on the couch. Haley feels comfortable here, so I took over the payments. I'm paying rent for no reason because I'm never here anymore. But when I am, I need a place to stay. Kim Scott lifts their daughter from her nest and takes her into the second bedroom. It has been a long day that began tonight, a driving tour through the Detroit streets and neighborhoods where Marshall Mathers spent the better part of the past 26 years. Man, driving through town tonight brought back a lot of memories, Marshall says, lowering his voice. I've been through a lot of shit, man. If I sit and think back on it, it's really fucked up. I mean, all my life has been fucked up. I look around at the brand new television, VCR, and the couch we are sitting on, all obviously bought in the past six months, and I realize that Marshall already lives the entertainer's life. He won't feel afloat existing in hotels and out of suitcases from now on. He has only known flux for the past twenty years, moving from home to home, living in different cities, changing schools, and working more than he didn't at one job or another since he was fifteen. His anchors in this world are here in his mother's double wide, his daughter, Detroit, Kim, and the pen and pad on the counter. There are no mementos of Marshall's childhood here. They exist in his mind, caught in the chaos he churns into words. Those mental pictures have sold 500,000 albums in just two weeks. It is later than late now and time for me to go. Kim gets up drowsily and Marshall puts his arm around her. I look around the trailer once more, knowing I'll never see it again. Soon enough, neither will they. 
A few weeks later, they will move in with Kim's mother. Some of her neighbors, excited to see Eminem on their block, won't realize he is actually Marshall, Kim's boyfriend, the one who has been stopping by off and on since he was 16. It's just two weeks after the release of a debut that will go on to sell three million copies in one year, garner two Grammys, and inspire a call to censorship by the editor-in-chief of Billboard magazine. That Marshall, the one who cooked and cleaned at Gilbert's Lodge for his minimum wage, is already gone. In 1996, Marshall Bruce Mathers III had already changed his stage name from his initials M and M to their phonetic synonym M and M. He was barely getting by on the five bucks and change he received hourly for washing dishes and cooking at Gilbert's Lodge in St. Clair Shores, a suburb of Detroit. That wasn't enough to cover the costs of pressing Infinite, his first independent release. Yet his rap career was underway. Mathers had been signed to an outfit called FBT Productions for four years. FBT is the Detroit production duo Mark and Jeff Bass, two brothers from Oak Park, one of Detroit's more racially integrated areas. As they tried to establish themselves as producers, the pair worked as inexpensive remixers for hire in the late 80s and early 90s. By this time, Mark was well into hip-hop, but his brother remained skeptical. Jeff Bass's opinion didn't change when he met the 15-year-old white kid his brother was eager to work with. Mark had found this new muse while in his car listening to a group of teens rapping on the radio on an open mic show. One of them was Marshall Mathers, the one Mark ended up speaking to when he later phoned the radio station's studio. Bass invited Mathers down to the brothers' modest basement recording studio that night. When Mathers arrived at 4 a.m., he freestyled with a pair of friends. It was the first time he'd ever seen a recording studio. The Basses then started cutting tracks with Mathers, watching him experiment with rhyme styles, from laid back to rapid fire, until he found himself. Mathers lived with his mother on the east side of Detroit at the time, and spent his nights after work writing rhymes until the early morning. He honed an even flowing style, laced with a gift of rhythm and a preference for intricate vocabulary inspired more by the joy of rhyming than narrative. He began writing songs for that first album, Infinite, in 1996. The Bass Brothers borrowed $1,500 from their mom to press 500 copies of the album, signing Mathers to the label they had created, W.E.B. Entertainment. The record landed in local Detroit stores and in the hands of hip-hop radio programmers and was unanimously ignored. Infinite chronicles Eminem's early days, his dreams of rap superstardom that flourished while he tried to pay the bills. Mathers' longtime girlfriend, Kim Scott, became pregnant and gave birth to Haley Jade Scott on Christmas 1995. The album is laced in skits and lyrics with his anxiety about raising his daughter on limited funds, his hope to leave her with half a million dollars, and a fantasy future full of national tours and airplay. Though prophetic, Infinite yielded finite results. There was a year after Infinite where every rhyme I started writing got angrier and angrier, Eminem recalls. That was from the feedback I got off that album. Motherfuckers was like, you sound like Nas and AZ. You're a white boy, what the fuck are you rapping for? Why don't you go into rock and roll? All types of shit like that started pissing me off. Eminem's frustration soon took over. 
He'd become a staple at open mic nights at local institutions like designer Maurice Malone's hip-hop shop, a weekly scene in Detroit where MCs battled. With nothing left to lose, Eminem's battle riffs grew darker, grittier, more nihilistic. His rhymes crazed, drug-obsessed, more belligerent than ever. He began to win competitions consistently and became a fixture, someone to beat. As local MCs started coming to the open mic nights to battle the white boy and make a name for themselves, whether they won or lost to him. In 1996, just before Christmas and Haley's first birthday, Eminem was fired from Gilbert's Lodge. He was rehired six months later, this time for a few months, then fired again, almost exactly to the year. In those interims, he worked where he could, mostly at a Little Caesar's Pizza. It became so tough to make ends meet while raising Haley that Eminem stopped rapping and writing for a time. Kim and Marshall fought bitterly, breaking up and making up with schizophrenic regularity. Eventually, she moved back in with her family, who had long disapproved of Marshall and made it difficult for him to see his daughter. It was his lowest point, and a time when Marshall Mathers saw suicide as a viable option, nearly ending his journey before it began. By this time, Eminem had already met Paul Rosenberg, an attorney and one-time rapper at the hip-hop shop. Eminem's longtime partner, Proof, Deshaun Holton, introduced Rosenberg to Eminem one night. The first time I met him, Rosenberg says, Proof had him at the hip-hop shop late in the day, after all the freestylers had cleared out. He had him sort of audition for me, although I don't think M knew that's what Proof was doing. He just had M up there rapping by himself over instrumentals, and not too many people were around. I was just checking him out, and I thought he was really good, Rosenberg says. The day we really met was when he had just started selling his Infinite album. All his friends were really excited because he had product, you know, which was a rare thing, and his was fairly professional-looking compared to what other people's homemade product was looking like. So he was excited. He was in a battle that day, and he won. Rosenberg was in his second year in law school pursuing a degree in music law. He had given up rapping years before, but was intent on representing Detroit's untapped talent. I talked to M after the battle that night, told him who I was, and he was really standoffish and shy, as he usually is when he first meets somebody. I just got his phone number, and I bought his tape off him for six bucks. Best investment I ever made. Rosenberg became a friend first, a manager-lawyer second, as he is today. Eminem's circle at the time were his classmates in rap school, Proof and con artist Denon Porter. Proof had made his own reputation as a battle MC, an omnipresent figure at Detroit open mic nights. Proof